0: Well, as you know, uh, a number of us, uh, almost all exclusively from our music worship team, went to Nashville this week to um, the uh, Sing Conference by uh, Keith and Kristen Getty. It was a spectacular time and uh, one that we hope to uh, share with you and and share some of the fruit of that um, in the coming weeks. Uh, However, there's no place like home. So it is good to be back with with our church family, and I've been eager. Um, I've been sitting on this message for 10 days, and I had just, having a hard time with that. So I am eager to share with you this morning what the Lord has taught me in John chapter 10. You probably recall the story that the Apostle Paul came to Thessalonica and as usual he went to the synagogue to proclaim the gospel. And, and how did he do this? Did he exhort people to close their eyes and just try to feel God, feel the presence of Jesus? That's not what he did, although that fits kind of contemporary American evangelicalism what he did instead was he went as was his custom and he reasoned with them from the scriptures he reasoned with them he explained and he proved that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and he said this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ in other words Paul engaged their minds he wanted to demonstrate that Jesus alone is the Messiah and in the in the way of salvation. Now, we have in the past number of weeks, we've been exposing New Age Christian mysticism, particularly by Sarah Young and her books, uh, Jesus Calling, and her other books like it, such as uh, Jesus Always. And my hope as your shepherd is that you will be more discerning readers, that you will read with with wisdom and with discernment. But Sarah Young presents a Jesus speaking in the first person, who actively encourages you to disengage your mind, to stop thinking, and to search for a mystical presence of some sort. For example, she writes in Jesus Calling in her December 4th entry, quote, As you spend time, and this is supposedly Jesus talking, As you spend time in my presence, my thoughts gradually form in your mind. Sometimes he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who might use Bible verses, Sometimes he enables you to hear me speak, in quotes, directly to you. Take time to listen to my voice. In other words, I will speak my truth to you, but if you have to, read the Bible. Even her view of Scripture is low. It's a very low view of Scripture. The Bible is not some set of Bible verses to be taken out of context with no thought or of study or understanding What she is giving to us is nothing more than an invitation to disengage your mind. And in fact, all through her books, the way she uses the Bible is nothing more than a little potion book, taking a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, and using it completely out of the context of the story of redemptive history. Numerous times, she speaks of Jesus telling us to, quote, "...whisper my name," which, as Sarah Young does countless times, paints Jesus in this weird, purely romantic light. And she writes, for example, quote, "...when you are with other people, you often lose sight of my presence. When you realize this has happened, whisper my name. This tiny act of trust brings me to the forefront of your consciousness where I belong." We're never told in Scripture to bring Jesus to the forefront of our consciousness. We're told to walk by faith and knowledge of the Son of God. And that knowledge is found in the Word of God alone. This is, again, nothing more than an invitation to check your mind at the door, that somehow Christianity is an experience alone. To not really think about your faith in Christ, but just try to feel His presence emotionally. And this is what we might call Christian mysticism at its worst. The Lord Jesus never taught us to disengage our minds. As a matter of fact, in our text this morning, what the Lord Jesus is going to do is he's going to use nothing short of intellectual, logical genius to reason with his hearers, to demonstrate that to not believe on him is illogical, it's irrational, it's unreasoned. He's essentially going to present empirical observable analytical evidence that he alone is the way of salvation. And he engages the mind. And our text this morning is John 10, 31 through 42. And we have to pick up the story kind of where we left it off a couple of weeks ago. We're returning to Jesus here in Jerusalem during it's during the wintertime. It's in the middle of the Feast of Dedication. And you remember that the Feast of Dedication was a, a non-biblical Jewish holiday It commemorated the retaking of the temple in 164 AD from Antiochus Epiphanes, and it was a festival of lights. It's known today as Hanukkah. Well, in verses 22 through 30, Jesus has once again scorched the Jewish leaders for their unbelief, while at the same time giving great comfort and great confidence to all who would believe in him. And we found great comfort in verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And to assert that both Jesus and his Father in heaven are in full agreement, not only in essence, but in will, in all that they do, Jesus has made this shocking statement in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And now we pick up the story. In verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, made yourself God. Now, you have to stop right there for a minute. His logic and his question is so pointed that he literally stops him in their tracks and they've got their arms up and they have to explain. Well, the reason we're about to do this is, is this. I mean, he just stops them right in their tracks. Verse 34, now he begins to mess with their minds in the best possible way. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So, very often, Jesus does appeal to the heart. I mean, we don't serve an unemotional Savior. Our faith is not an unemotional faith. He, he explained that as the good shepherd, his sheep hear his voice. That's laden with emotion, to know that we hear him, that he has spoken to us in a way that we can comprehend the God of the universe. And he's given us very heart-compelling reasons to be one of his sheep. But now he's going to appeal directly to the minds of his spiritual opponents. And he's going to present two logical reasons to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are things that you probably already believe, but in retrospect, you had to come to these conclusions. You had to believe these things. First logical reason to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll just call it his mandate. His mandate. This is the unique calling, the unique mission of Jesus Christ. Verse 31 records now the fifth attempt on Jesus' life. The leaders were taking Jesus' words as blasphemy. They believed, rightly by the way, that Jesus was claiming to be God. They were correct on that. They just missed the fact that he, was actually, he actually is God. The law of Moses did prescribe stoning to death as a punishment for blasphemy in Leviticus 24, but not by mob rule. They were leaving out the whole justice system. They were trying to be judge and executioner all at the same time. But here's the irony, and this is why location and situation are so important. These leaders of Israel are attempting to murder Jesus for blasphemy, supposed blasphemy. But remember that this exchange we saw this last time, is taking place in Solomon's portico. This is on the east side of the temple during a festival marking the reconsecration of the temple to proper worship. In other words, they're about to commit murder during a festival which commemorates the purity of temple worship on the temple grounds. The irony is not lost on John, and that's why he gives us that location that in and of itself would have been an act of blasphemy to commit murder on the temple grounds and would have been worthy of the death penalty to do that and so as the Jewish leaders are getting set for attempted murder in the face of being stoned to death Jesus stayed calm and he asked a logical question that was unanswerable for which of these works I've done do you stone me in other words So are you going to kill me for healing the blind man or for healing the deaf man? Are you going to stone me for casting out demons from people who are terribly oppressed? Are you going to stone me for feeding 20,000 people at one time? Are you going to stone me for walking on water? Which of those things are you going to stone me for? Once again, he notes that he's not acting on his own initiative. He's not wholly independent. He's doing the works of his father. They were prepared in heaven for him to do. But the Jews sidestepped his question. They ignored his question. They jumped right to their conclusion that Jesus was being blasphemous. Now, don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't say, well, they just hadn't read some books or they haven't been to church in a long time or they just don't know very much that they're ignorant. Listen, these men completely and totally understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. In verse 33, they said so. They said they understand this. They're not acting in ignorance. And Jesus certainly backed up that claim with his words and with his works, but they were blinded by sin, blinded by rage, blinded by satanic influence. Their minds were made up, and they refused to even consider the possibility that Jesus might actually be who he says he is. So now Jesus gives them this first logical reason that they should believe in him, his mandate, the fact that he's been sent by the Father to do the Father's will in proclaiming the kingdom of Messiah and ultimately to die for the sins of all who would believe. He's going to use an argument, what we call, from the lesser to the greater. In other words, that if they believe something that's small, they ought logically to believe the larger version of the same thing. Let me put it in terms we can all relate to. If one bite of vanilla ice cream is good, a whole carton is better. And we all get that. That's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And so he paints them into an intellectual corner by beginning with something that they all agree on, the Bible. And he even says, is it not written in your law, in the Bible that you believe, the scriptures that you have studied, the Torah that you have been raised on your whole lives? Isn't it written in your scrolls? And he calls it the law. That can be a technical term for the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law of Moses, But very often it's used just to speak of the entire Old Testament. And then Jesus quotes to them a very mysterious verse. He quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6. And this is an exact quote. It's not a reference. It's not a citation. It's not uh, any sort of of, uh, mutation of the verse. I said, you are gods. And he quotes these words. And he says, isn't that written there? Now, the the obvious answer in their minds, well, yeah, we all agree on that. We all agree with the 82nd Psalm. And again, he affirms that they also believe the scripture cannot be broken Which, by the way, shows Christ's view of the Bible. It Being broken, it means it can't be emptied of its power. It can't be negated. It can't be shown to have errors. Don't we all agree on this, guys? Yeah, we all agree on that. We may hate you. We may be holding stones in our hand. We're about to kill you. But yes, you do have a point. We agree that Scripture cannot be broken. It has what theologian B.B. Warfield called indefectible authority. And they all agreed on this. He's just, he's got them hooked and he's reeling them in. Here they come. Now what Jesus is referring to is the fact that God himself has called men gods. Not that they're little deities and God certainly isn't affirming a pantheon of gods such as the Greeks and Romans believed that somehow the God of the Bible just happens to be the biggest one. That's not what Jesus is affirming. It's simply a term that God himself has used to speak of his representatives on earth. That anyone who represents him is a God with a little g. And so this is his argument. Here's his list of facts. In light of these facts, one, Scripture cannot be broken. They agree on that. Two, Scripture, which can't be broken, calls representatives of God, gods. Third fact, the men to whom Jesus is speaking believe the Scriptures How then is he blaspheming by calling himself the son of God? They agree with everything. How can it be blasphemy? That if mere men are called gods, how much more the singular man sent by God? The one that verse 36 says was consecrated, set apart, sent. He's sent forth on a mission. It's the only time a representative of God literally came from God and literally is God. The only time by the way, the one that the scriptures that they all believe in say is coming. And so they don't have a single leg to stand on here. He's putting his opponents in the position to disagree with the scriptures. You can stone me, but you're disagreeing with the Bible if you do. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not putting himself in the class with other men, with the judges and the kings of old, the representatives of God. His argument is this, if in any sense at all, Sinful human beings can be representatives called gods. How much infinitely more should it be appropriate to apply to God, to the Son of God, one who was not just picked out on earth, but sent down from heaven, to apply the title Son of God to him? How much more appropriate to do that? Now, their accusation is that Jesus is what we might call a a self-appointed charlatan. He, they said, you make yourself God, in verse 33. But what Jesus is saying is, I, I haven't made myself anything. He always has been God, and the Father himself testifies to this fact. John five thirty-seven: the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. The implication is, but I have. I just came from there a few years ago. I just came from heaven. But here's the real irony. Jesus isn't a man who tried to make himself God. Jesus is God who made himself a man so that he could come to us, so that he could be a mediator between holy God and unholy mankind. And the way he mediates between God and between man is to be both. And only he can do this. This is absolutely flawless arguing. The Jewish leaders themselves believe that God appointed men to represent him. Thus, when the ultimate representative has arrived, they ought all the more to listen to him. We've had all of these men. We've had judges. We've had priests. We've had kings. And now God himself is here. But they rejected him. Now, is Jesus just making that point? Is that the only point he's making? I'd like to argue that it actually goes beyond that one clear logical argument. Because the Jewish leaders to whom he spoke, they would be very familiar with the context of Psalm 82. By the way, Jesus and no other New Testament writer who references the Old Testament, do they ever take an Old Testament reference out of context. It always fits in context. Jesus isn't just proving his point that if you believe that it's okay for God to represent himself with people he calls gods, you ought all the more believe that when the Son of God has come, I am the ultimate representative of God. That's not his only point. What he's also doing, because they understand the context of Psalm 82, he is jabbing an accusation at them. He is judging them and he is condemning them. Now, I want to want to show this to you, so take a moment and turn with me to Psalm 82. Let's see why he's giving them an accusation, a judgment. Now, the context of Psalm 82, and they would know this, it's a rebuke. It is a condemnation. It is, a, it is an exhortation against failure. It's a rebuke of God's representatives on earth, the God's of verse 6. The psalm rebukes those who love the wicked and deny justice to the poor and to the needy. Psalm 82 verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. This is the picture of an assessment, a judgment being given over the gods, the human judges and kings given power by God. And again, these aren't somehow lesser deities. These are all created beings These are men. And here's God's indictment in verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, this indictment certainly applies first and foremost to the spiritual and political leaders of Israel. The law of Moses commanded the right treatment of the downcast. This is real social justice. Real social justice is doing what the law of God says to do. For example, Deuteronomy twenty four seventeen: you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. Watch out for those who are, who are less fortunate. Jeremiah 22:3 thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. But historically, many of Israel's leaders failed to live up to their duty to protect the people, to uphold the law of God, to point the people to the mercies and the glories and the love of God. They failed. In the 7th century B.C., the prophet Habakkuk complained to God about the state of Israel's society. Habakkuk 1, 3, and 4, he complains to God. He says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. The leaders of Israel had so often failed in their duty as as judges To uphold the law of God and to protect the the set-apart, sacred, holy, sanctified society of Israel. They're supposed to be different. And Habakkuk's complaint is, look, we're just like everyone else. We're not different. And so these judges, these kings, these priests, these prophets, they were the gods. They were the mediated presence of God with human mediators acting as his representatives of course, we can say as a side note, Christ is so much better. He is the unmediated presence of God. God in the flesh now acting as his own mediator. But now God hearkens back to his assignment to these representatives. Here's what you are supposed to do. And now we get to the actual verse that Jesus quoted. In verse 6, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. In other words, God said, I've said that these gods are human representatives of God on earth. You are to act for me. And there's very clear precedent for this. This is not somehow a singular incident here. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses was afraid to speak to Israel. He was afraid to speak to Pharaoh on God's behalf. So God said he could take his brother Aaron with him. But God would still work through Moses to Aaron to speak. And he says this in Exodus 4.16, he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. In other words, Moses is the representative of God. Exodus 7 verse 1, God told Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Psalm 45 verse 6, which ultimately is applied prophetically to Jesus Christ and is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. But in its original context was speaking first of a righteous human king. But here's the righteous human king. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, certainly that's most appropriately applied to Christ, who really is God. But verse 1 of Psalm 45 says, I address my verses to the king. And so we have clear precedent for seeing these gods, little g, as human representatives. But then Psalm 82 takes two interesting twists that we have to deal with. And we'll do the second twist first. In verse 8, the psalm suddenly takes a very international flavor. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, what is this? This is a proclamation that the judges, the kings, the leaders, the rulers, the governors of the earth will all be replaced. They'll all be fired. They'll all be stepped down. And this really fits in with verse 1, which has the feel of a divine, large-scale courtroom scene, which is very comprehensive in nature. All the leaders of the world. This isn't just Israel. This is comprehensive. This is international. Uh, All of a sudden, we're looking far beyond the borders of Israel, and really to the leaders of the whole world. But the psalm takes another twist. The first one, and not only does it have an international flavor, it has a supernatural flavor. Here is the sentence of judgment, verses 6 and 7. I said, in other words, in the past, this is what I proclaimed. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is very supernatural. Because God is making the distinction, you're not going to die just as men. You're going to die like men. In other words, I'm not just speaking to human beings. I'm speaking to somebody else. We already know from other scriptures that the leaders of the world don't act independently. There are spiritual powers behind the human judges, behind the human kings. For example, demonic powers, fallen angels, are seen in Scripture as the force and the power behind nations, behind leaders. Daniel chapter 10 speaks of demonic leaders behind wicked actions of entire nations. It speaks of the the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. Those are demons. These are all under the sovereign allowance and plan of God, by the way. This isn't God trying to catch up to this evil power. This is all under his sovereign plan. In fact, we see this demonstrated maybe more clearly than any other place in Scripture. In 1 Kings 22, we get this behind-the-scenes look at a visit between God and demonic powers. The fact that demons impact human leaders under God's divine providential allowance. Listen to this text from 1 Kings 22. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, a wicked king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramath-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. These are always under the sovereign control of God. They never act outside his divine decree, his divine allowance. As a matter of fact, Job chapter 2 records that the fallen angels, the demons, are required to report to God regularly. By the way, what does Job 2 and Genesis ten, Genesis 6 rather call these demonic powers? He calls them the sons of God because he created them. But ultimately, God's condemnation of them is clear. Again, I said you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, what does it mean, like men, you shall die? We hold that currently the place that the Bible calls hell is unoccupied at this moment. That there is another holding place that the Bible calls Hades, which at the final judgment, uh, Revelation 20 says that death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire, into hell. Guess where all the fallen angels and all the unsaved people of all time get to spend eternity together? Like men, you will die. Don't picture demons as somehow having a wonderful time in hell. They're going to be sentenced there. They don't want to go there. Like men, you shall die. Now, what does that have to do with the fact that I said that Jesus is not only proving his point, but he's giving a scathing condemnation and judgment of the very men to whom he's speaking in John 10. Well, in the fuller context of Psalm 82, Jesus is the divine God who at this moment is sitting in judgment on the gods to the very men whom he is speaking. And they know what he's saying. He is judging them. He is condemning them. They are the ones that earlier he said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus has been given the divine mandate from God. Not just as a God, little g, but as God himself in the flesh. Now, I bring this up to say that if you're still considering coming to faith in Christ, if you're still wondering, logically speaking, waiting makes no sense. To say, I'm not ready, intellectually speaking, is like saying, I'm still not certain if I would rather burn in hell or be saved from my sin. That's what you're really saying. I'm still trying to decide that. To say I'm not ready is not a valid argument. The condemnation is already there. There is zero logical, zero intellectual reason to avoid coming to faith in Christ. Nothing bad will happen to you by coming to faith in Christ. There is nothing holding you back except you. See, if you're hesitant to receive Christ as your Savior, you don't have a logical reason. What you have is a moral reason. And the moral reason is, is that you think you may be good enough for God without Christ. That's your reason. In other words, evidence is not your challenge. Your own pride is your challenge. That is your challenge. You are willfully refusing to be broken about your sin and to come humbly to Christ, asking for him to make the payment for you, which you owe to God. You owe God your death. You owe God your judgment. You owe God an eternity in his wrath. That is the wages of sin according to Romans six twenty three. So you have two choices, which is the logical one. Choice A, stay prideful and pay the penalty yourself for all of eternity, or choice B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, let him pay your penalty, and enjoy the goodness and the communion and the blessing in the heaven of God forever and ever. There's no logic to say no to Christ. God is a God of justice, and the price for your sin will be paid. It will either be paid by you, or it will be paid by Christ. There are no other options. The first logical reason to believe Christ his mandate. There's a second logical reason, and that is his miracles. His miracles. Turn with me back to John chapter 10, if you haven't done so already. His miracles. Now, in verse 37... Jesus issues a challenge of logic that they must prove that Jesus is not doing the works of the Father. That He places the onus of proof on them. Verse thirty-seven: If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. In other words, prove that everything I've done is not from God. Show me the source. Which, in fact, because of the things, the, the things he, were, he was doing were so spectacular. They knew there were only two options, and they already said this. Option one, God is doing these miracles. They refused to believe that, and so they went with the only other option they thought was possible, and that was that Jesus does his miracles by the power of Satan. And he's already been accused of this. Mark 3, beginning in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, that's Satan, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's one of the funniest questions in the whole Bible, by the way. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So their only other option for the reason for all these miracles besides God is a completely illogical option that Jesus would be doing works by the power of Satan, which hurts the power of Satan. That doesn't make any sense. And so, believing that the works of Jesus, which they never denied, by the way, they never said, you're faking that, or that's not real, or that's a trick. They never said that. They never tried to minimize his miracles. The evidence was too overwhelming. 20,000 people being fed a miraculous meal can't all be wrong. But believing the works of Jesus to not be from God is simply illogical. There are no other options that make sense. So then Jesus says that this leaves only one option. His works are from God, and therefore, he is from God. Verse 38, But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Now, Jesus isn't saying, if you don't have faith in me, at least have faith in the miracles. He's not not saying that. That's ultimately inadequate faith. What he's saying is, believe the miracles so that you can believe the one doing the miracles. At least believe the miracles first, and let your mind lead you to the only logical conclusion. He's willing to let his works speak for themselves, to say, hey, look at what I did. You judge because anyone who believes his works are from God will believe the one who does the miracles. But he's asking them to use their minds. And listen to how he's asking them to use their minds, to see the illogical nature of not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. His purpose in pointing to his works is seen in this little phrase here, that you may know and understand. There's two verbs here and they're they're the same Greek word two different times they're just in two different forms. The grammatical form of the first verb speaks of a singular action at one time and the second of a continued action. So in other words that you may come to know one time and keep on knowing. This is a beautiful subtle call to salvation. Come to know at one time and then keep believing and keep believing and keep believing. And in other words, the works, the miracles of Jesus, they constitute a call to faith, a call to action that you cannot look at everything that he did and just say, hmm, isn't that interesting and walk away. It demands a response. It demands a response. It's a call to action that being neutral is not an option. But... If he's not doing the works of his Father, he says, then don't believe. Don't believe. So what do we have to determine? We have to determine if Jesus is doing the works of the Father. Can we determine this objectively? We actually can. We can objectively demonstrate that everything Jesus did is what the Father does. And so to to do this, to make this argument, first we have to establish the works that Jesus was doing. Now, many scholars have already usefully categorized the miracles of Jesus that he demonstrated power over nature, power over sickness, power over demons, power over death. Let's just walk through this. Did he demonstrate power over nature? He turned water into wine in John chapter 2. He instantly changed the molecular structure of water to not only be wine, but high quality wine, according to John 2. He fed 5,000 men plus their children and wives. The only miracle except the resurrection of Christ, by the way, which is recorded in all four Gospels, he created food that previously didn't exist. And just to make sure we got it, he did it with 4,000 men and their wives and children another time. He stilled a raging sea instantaneously. And it wasn't just a slow subsiding of the weather, it was an instant calming of the water. He walked on the sea. He suspended the laws of physics, which, by the way, he established in the first place. And he walked on water. He provided tax money from the mouth of a fish, knowing exactly which fish had the money and how much he owed. He withered a fig tree to demonstrate the coming destruction of Jerusalem, his only destructive miracle. And on two occasions, he gave his disciples a miraculous catch of fish. He has power over nature, clear. What about power over sickness? Let me take a deep breath. He healed a nobleman's son in Cana. He restored the sight of the blind in Bethsaida. He restored the sight of a man born blind in Jerusalem. He healed a paralyzed man in Jerusalem. He healed a woman with an internal disease. He healed a paralyzed man in Capernaum. I didn't make it. He healed a man of leprosy at Gennesaret. He healed Peter's mother in law of a deadly fever. He restored the deformed hand of a man in Galilee. He healed a man who had gone deaf and couldn't speak. He healed blind Bartimaeus. He healed a Canaanite Syrophoenician girl. He healed a centurion servant. He healed a woman who had been crippled 18 years. He healed a man of dropsy, which is edema. He healed 10 men at once with leprosy. He healed the severed ear of Malchus, who was coming to arrest him. Does he have power over sickness? Absolutely. In fact, one verse in the gospel says that he cleared Galilee of illness. How about power over demons? He freed demon-possessed men from spiritual oppression on the east shore of the Sea of Galilee, he freed a child of demon possession at Mount Tabor. He healed a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak. He freed a demon-possessed man in the synagogue in Capernaum and didn't even break a sweat. Power over death. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised the dead of a widow, son of a widow in Nain. He raised Lazarus from the dead. By the way, after saying he was going to do so, and just to put the cap on it, he raised himself from the dead. But remember how John's gospel ends in John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But I want to focus for a moment while we're still establishing the works that Jesus did before we compare them to the works of the Father. I want to focus for a moment on his power over death. This is the big one. This is the work that only God can do. No one can fake this. So let's talk about resurrection. Now, depending on how you count, there are about 12 to 14 resurrections in the Bible, if you include future resurrections that haven't happened yet. But how many of them have some sort of connection to Christ? How many of them? Jesus himself is recorded as raising three people from the dead. It's extremely likely there were more. Jesus said in John ten seventeen that he lays down his life that he may take it up again so he's powerfully involved in his own resurrection. That takes care of four of them. Those are the obvious ones. But Elijah the prophet, 800 years before the time of Christ, he raised the son of the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, eight centuries before Christ. But who appeared with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration taking orders from Jesus? Elijah the prophet? Not to be outdone by his mentor, Elijah. Elisha raised a Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4.18. And since Elisha had specifically asked for a double portion of Elijah's prophetic power, a dead man's body was thrown on Elisha's dead bones and the dead man sprung to life so that he could double up on Elijah's resurrections. Elisha was confirmed by his fellow prophets as being the one on whom the spirit of Elijah rested, a continuation of Elijah's ministry, which was directly connected to Christ. Matthew 27 records that at the resurrection of Jesus, tombs around Jerusalem broke open and true worshipers of God who had died were raised from the dead. Why? Because Jesus had been raised. Acts chapter 9 records the apostle Peter miraculously raising Tabitha from the dead in Joppa with the result in verse 42 that many place their faith in whom? In Jesus Christ. Acts 20 records the interesting incident in Troas, which Paul is preaching. This is my worst nightmare, preaching in the third floor room, and poor old Eutychus fell asleep during the sermon, fell out of the window, and died Paul ran downstairs, raised him from the dead, ran back upstairs and continued preaching what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the saints, as recorded in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, says that the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Daniel 12 verse 2 prophetically records the resurrection of Old Testament saints which is connected time-wise to Daniel chapter 9's prophecy of the cutting off and sacrifice of Messiah, Jesus Christ. Revelation 11 records the future resurrection of two witnesses. Many feel these are actually Moses and Elijah returned to the earth to minister to Jerusalem during the Great Tribulation. But these witnesses, they're killed for their testimony of Christ and raised in the sight of all and taken up into heaven, which results in what? Many coming to faith in Christ. And Revelation 20 records the resurrection of the unsaved dead in order to face judgment at the judgment throne of God. Christ, do you understand that every resurrection in the Bible is connected to Christ? And it shouldn't surprise us. In the very next chapter in John, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And his ultimate purpose in these works from the Father. Mark 2 beginning in verse 10 Jesus says but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins and then he heals a paralyzed man that same savior God who has power over nature and sickness and demons and death has the power to grant forgiveness and grant eternal life that's so confidence building so the works of Jesus are unmistakable by the way Some would say, well, that's just coming from one source from the Bible. The first century Jewish historian Josephus, who was not a believer, he wrote in his book, Jewish Antiquities, that Jesus Christ was a wise man, quote, who wrought surprising feats. He acknowledged the miraculous power of Christ. The Babylonian Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish writings compiled between 70 and 500 AD, says this, On the eve of Passover, Yeshu, that is Jesus, was hanged. That's a synonym for being crucified. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, He is going forth to be stoned. Remember, the leaders wanted to stone him to death. And he goes on, because he has practiced sorcery, meaning he has done things that nobody can explain. Even unbelievers know that Jesus did miracles. They just refuse to acknowledge the source. But did Jesus do the works of the Father? We had to do all of that to establish did he do the works of the Father? Well, here are the Father's works. Does the Father have power over nature? How about the creation of nature in the first place? How about the ten plagues of Egypt? How about the parting of the Red Sea? How about the withholding and the giving of rain in the Old Testament? Does the Father have power over sickness? The Old Testament records healing from leprosy, healing from the inability to have children, the healing of Hezekiah's terminal illness, the healing of mental illness in Nebuchadnezzar and other healings. Does he have power over demons? Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 17, speaks of God in the future, utterly defeating all demonic powers. And of course, he's already defeated demonic powers in one giant victory by drowning all of the people that the demons inhabited. According to Genesis 6, demons had violated their boundaries and began inhabiting men and procreating with women, so God wiped them out in the flood. So he has power over nature, power over sickness, power over demons. Does he have power over death? We've already seen the resurrections in the Old Testament. But even more than that, God himself declares his sovereignty over life and over death Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he. Then there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Do you understand that category for category, category for category, category for category, Jesus does the works of the Father in spades. And because he's doing the works of the Father, He is demonstrating his ability to save and forgive sin. And the logical question is, who else are you going to turn turn to? Who else is there? Muhammad? Buddha? Those two guys have something in common. They're both dead. They should have believed on Christ, these men that Jesus is speaking to. It's the only logical thing to do. There is no other logical option. But blinded by their sinful pride, the only reason people do not believe on Christ, by the way, verse 39, again they sought to arrest him and he escaped from their hands. We need to understand that God places every human being in one of two categories. One, those who would humbly receive the death of Christ as a gift to pay for their sin. And the second category, those who would be in the same camp as those who murdered Christ willfully. There is no middle ground You will either be saved because you trusted Christ or you will be condemned because you murdered Christ. You may as well have put the nails in his wrists because to stay neutral is to agree with those who do not believe in him and who desire to put him to death. Now, for John's gospel, the major major public ministry of Jesus has now come to an end. This is the end of his public ministry. We see in verse 40, He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So Jesus has gone full circle. He's returned to the same geographic location where John the Baptist had been proclaiming Christ in the gospel where Jesus began his ministry. It really bookends the, the gospel of John at this point, which began in the ministry of, of John the Baptist and ends in the same region. And in contrast to those who hate Christ, many at the end of his ministry, it says, believed in him there. And we take great hope and comfort from that. It's cold. It's wintertime. It's In a few months, as the flowers are blooming and as the weather gets a little bit warmer, Jesus will begin to, as the Gospel of Luke says, set his face toward Jerusalem. And he will go all the way to the cross. And the next time these same leaders meet with Jesus, they will, in fact, murder him. They will carry out their wicked desire. There are no intellectual reasons to doubt the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He has a mandate from God. He has the miracles of God. Now, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have believed these truths, you you love and you cherish this truth because it gives you such confidence. I mean, what a savior we have. How confident we can be in him. But if you have not believed, if I could just tell you in as much love as I possess in representing God... The only reason you haven't believed is you. It's you. It's your pride. It's you have not taken the one minute that it would take to tell God, I am wretched and I need to be forgiven. Don't let one minute of humility lead to an eternity of hell. Don't let your own pride make you refuse to bend the knee to Christ. And to remind us of his death and to remind us of the means by which Jesus Christ has secured our salvation. He gave us the Lord's table to be reminded of his body, which was broken for us, and to be reminded of his blood, which was shed on our behalf. And we'll pray, and then we're going to enjoy the Lord's table together. Our Father, we come to you now, thanking you for the word of God. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is the most logical thing there is to do. Who else would we turn to? As the Apostle Peter once said famously, where else will we turn? Who else will we go to? There is no other option. There's nobody else. And so, Lord, we thank you for the truths that you have presented to us this morning in your word. We thank you, Lord, for now this Lord's table that we are going to celebrate at the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who commanded us to come to the table to remember his death and to celebrate with a sense of sobriety and, and seriousness the sacrifice that he had to make on our behalf so that someday we could celebrate with him in person. And we look forward to that day. Be with us now, Lord, as we come to the high point of Christian worship on the Lord's table. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.